what happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang? That's, to me, the most interesting question in all of science. Welcome to What the If. Philip Shane here, documentary filmmaker and host of the wild and wonderful podcast that you are listening to now. If you've been here before, welcome back. I'm so glad to have you back. If you're new, get ready for a wild ride. My co-pilot here, Matthew Stanley, professor of... The history of science. The history of science. He's the one. You're the one. You're the one. The professor. How many professors of history of science are there? Like anywhere? I suppose. Oh, I suppose. Or that you know of. There's probably a thousand worldwide. Wow. That's an elite crew. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, so our conferences are cozy. Right. Right. The first rule of professors of history of science club is go to the archives. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. And just quickly describe as, as, as viewers, viewers, this is what happens when you guy, you get a guy who works in video and tries to do a radio program. <laughs> yeah. Our listeners who have been here before know that this is a game show. It's a show where we do a game. Exactly. We play a game with you. Mm -hmm. And what is the game exactly? Is it for, do we get uh, money? We get very little money. Okay. We get the satisfaction of changing the universe to our own whims. Priceless. And then figuring out uh, how things are different. Then we learn some science along the way. Exactly. Here come the sirens, by the way. They're coming to get us because uh -huh. they heard that maybe we yeah, were. If we could very quickly change to a universe where the police aren't chasing me, that would be really convenient. <laughs> Touche. Touche. We have a special guest today who I'm going to introduce in just a second. But first, I want to open up the mailbag, which is a very popular feature. We, we did it, I think, a couple shows ago. People love it. People love the mailbag. Here we go. Because this is a science-based program, I must, you know, put in a disclaimer. There is not technically mail, and there definitely is no bag. <laughs> Other than that. Other than that, these were all submitted in digital form, bits and bytes, that came across the various social media connectivity lines. Miguel Bento, at The Pora. He is a... We have super ifers, uh, uh, Miguel, from South Africa... Is a super duper duper ifer. Uh, he's one of our biggest fans and most frequent communicators, and we're glad for that. Miguel uh, wrote in to say on Twitter to us, so awesome to come back from leave, because that's like mm. vacation, uh, and have five, five brand spanking new episodes of What the If to awaken my brain in 2019. Happy face, happy face. Hook them horns. Uh, heavy metal. What is that gesture? The, yeah, the horns. Yeah, the horns. So that's wonderful. 
I wonder if you've caught up with all five. If, if you have, welcome to the present, Miguel. I post news stories that I find interesting, and there's no shortage of them come across my desk, also known as my phone. One of them I posted was a headline from, this is from Nature, quote, New Caledonian crows are notoriously brainy. Now researchers have demonstrated that these crows make sophisticated inferences by observing the world around them. And at Matthias J, Matthias says, it's sad how for so long people have categorized various animals as not conscious, quote, not conscious, unquote. There's no way anything could survive in the wild without having some level of free thought and methods of deduction. Like Sherlock Holmes. Animals are more conscious than we're still willing to admit. So a shout out to animals. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag respect. I hear you. Another article, this was from Cosmos Magazine. By the way, this becomes mailbag slash news report. So uh, rip, ripping headlines um, as we go. Quote, science history. This is right, this is right for you, Matt. Science history. Uh, the ex-slave who transformed the American South. Grover Washington Carver became a pioneering mm-hmm. agricultural scientist working literally for peanuts. Mm-hmm. That's right. Posted by, Co- that was from Cosmos Magazine, a beautiful profile, actually, and a beautiful picture of Grover Washington Carver there. And uh, we got a couple, a couple tweets back from our audience at Zarthosti Comdin, whose biography is, by the way, saving and preserving hashtag Zarthosti, in parentheses, hashtag Parsi, cultural heritage, sacred places of worship and community assets, truth, honesty, and sincerity always, which I, I can uh, support. And he says that was a beautiful story. May God Almighty bless his soul. Amen, amen, amen. To which I say, amen. Dr. Antagonist. (laughs) These two tweeters walk into a bar. One is there for truth, honesty, and sincerity, and the other is at, uh, at Dr. Antagonist, whose bio is a dying John Adams once advised a young man to, quote, agitate, always agitate. Hmm. How his words ring true even to this day and age. Interesting. So the very agitated, and rightfully so, Dr. Antagonist says, what an incredible person George Washington Carver was. He overcame such, uh, what an incredible person who overcame such adversities of his day. Maybe we'll do a story on him. It was one thing we love to do here is feature the stories of scientists who are known but not known. We'll figure something out. Yeah. Antonio Paris, who's amazing, he's, by the way, a planetary scientist, astrophysicist, dive master, author of Mars 3D, and combat hmm. veteran with a Bronze Star Medal. Wow. Also a Puerto Queño, with a little picture of uh, the flag of uh, Puerto Rico there. Hashtag respect, hashtag respect, hashtag respect to Antonio Paris. He posted a beautiful picture. He posts lots of amazing pictures, by the way. You should follow him, at Antonio Paris, P-A-R-I-S posted a picture of the sands of Mars with a lot of dark triangles on it. They were triangular mm-hmm. shaped dunes. They were making triangular shadows, these dunes. Cool. It was really cool looking. So I said in reaction, I would name this formation the Devil's Clogs. Because they weren't wow. just triangles. They were sort of triangles, but with like the bottom part was sort of a, 
concave little circle. Which, what is he, what am I talking about? Well, Jeb Rowledge responded saying, Star Trek comes to mind. And then I was like, yes. I mean, it looked exactly like that Star Trek Starfleet symbol. Joe Gasper, known as at Reactor Joe, said, those are some parked Cylon Raiders. Oh, well, that would explain a lot. And two both badass answers. Jackie Kropensky, who also was a super iffer, she writes in a lot, at Fiery Jack, J-A-Q-42. Always great to see you and read your post, Jackie. She says, I see Starfleet insignia. So we have a Star Trek versus uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica duel here over interpreting photographs from Mars, which is, you know, interpreting mm-hmm. photographs is yeah. it's a tough challenge. Yep. And dog farts. Yes, I said it. Dog farts at O-H-L-G-R. Because by the name Dog Fart says, looks more like the Starfleet tagged Mars with the insignia. So Starfleet wins. Okay. Dog farts. Dog farts. Whoops. Star Trek over the top. And the final the final item from the mailbag here, which was, uh, by the way, kept in a Hellman's mayonnaise jar on the porch of Funkin' and Wagnalls. New York Times. So I posted this article from the New York Times science section, also an amazing source of science news. At, uh, sorry, quote, Jasmine Barnes' case shows how trauma can affect memory. So it's the story of a brain scientist studying how trauma affects memory and looking biologically, at the, uh, physically at the brain as well. Noreda Reyes, uh, at Noreda, who is a freelance writer, working on a second novel. Isn't the world just fascinating, Noreda says. I wish I could explore it all. And Noreda is in Saratoga Springs, New York, and says, it's hard, to, it's hard to accept that Professor McNally's quote at the end could be true. Well, what was I quote? That our minds are not powerful enough to encode everything. Yeah. I prefer to think they are, and it's our recall that's at fault. I'm interested in learning the scientific basis for these two views. Oh, okay. So interesting. We, we may dive into that. Chat about that. Yeah. 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 Thank you all for writing in. Again, on Twitter, we are at What The If Show. Follow us there, or you can uh, go to our website, whattheif.com, click contact, or simply write an email feed to feedback at whattheif.com. And now, without further ado, I am opening the airlock here in our hangar bay to reveal the entire universe beyond. And there, floating majestically in his spacesuit, is astronomer Brian Keating. Welcome back, Brian, to the What the If. Hello, world. my fellow ifers. Welcome back. How are things going? How's the book going? The book, the book is stable, very stable sales, <laughs> very consistent sales. Nice. The very round number of sales. No, it's, uh, it's been phenomenal. It's gotten, uh, you know, ironically for a book about, you know, losing awards, it, it managed to win uh, six or seven of the coveted uh, awards in the category from different outlets like uh, Science Friday and Amazon and Physics Today all sorts of the best and brightest periodicals and the unemployed philosophers guild gave it a, gave it a four star ratings. So you, you don't want to strive for perfection. <laughs> That's awesome. That's they always want to give awesome. you something, something to aspire to. 
Yeah. So it's been uh, really a phenomenal time for me. So for those who don't don't know, the book we're talking about is uh, your book called Losing the Nobel Prize. And I encourage every one of you, if you hadn't heard it, go, go, go to our website, whattheif.com, or just there on your phone, scroll back through the earlier episodes, and you will see uh, a previous episode, a fantastic one we did with Brian. And also we did a separate, there's like a separate little bonus episode about a 15-minute conversation just about the book itself. And, and just for, for those who didn't know, what's, what's the sort of quick, what's the thesis of it? Yeah, so the book is really it's a it's a how to guide for how to <laughs> how to handle losing yeah, the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's a very big market uh, for people in that in that uh, predicament. No, it's it's really um, mostly a book about cosmology and sociology of scientists and the craft of being a scientist and what impels us to do what we do. And and sometimes some of us get more caught up in accolades than than we should. But the real core crux of the book is not the, you know, three chapters out of 10 or so dedicated to the Nobel Prize and how it should be reformed. But but really, it's a story of cosmology and, and a memoir of what it's like to be a scientist. So the main thrust of the book was really sort of a, a memoir of my life in the last 10, 15 years trying to reveal the origin of the universe or perhaps uh, shed light on the question that we might get into today of whether or not there could have been multiple instances of universes creating multiple big bangs, et cetera. So that, that is a topic we cover, I cover in the book. And uh, really I, I felt like it was important to have a book written by an experimentalist with due respect to all my brilliant <laughs> theoretical colleagues uh, that you may know and love from interviewing them. There haven't been too many books written about you know how you actually go about building the instruments that give us the data to kill off the wacky theories that my colleagues are fond of promoting. <laughs> so it's sort of a nice, nice uh, um, counterpoint to those narratives. Yeah, it's a great book about how science gets done. If you want to feel what it's, get a feel for what the day to day work is like, it's a terrific one. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, as you had mentioned, it was the best and favorite book of uh, science books of the year from science friday it's on, and as you said on amazon science news physics today forbes and symmetry magazine yeah now is that a um, symmetry magazine is that like one of those that you have to be a certain age to read what is symmetry magazine this oh, sounds yeah. very exciting by the way yeah it's um it's for the demographic right after highlights magazine for <laughs> uh, sort of you, you highlight the symmetries. It's a it's a periodical. I think it's exclusively web based now. It used to be in print. It's put out by Fermilab and sort of the U.S. Department of Energy's wing that that does such things. So, yeah, it it's it's as a select audience <laughs> to be sure mostly high energy particle physicists and cosmologists but you know those are the kind of accolades actually i was um surprised to get i mean when i wrote the book i knew i'd get a lot of flack and and i did and the flack kind of fell into two camps you know one is is you know n- no one shall disrupt the image of the nobility of the nobel prize and all who have ever won it and aspire to win it and the other kind was you know this is 
kind of sour grapes and you just wanted to win it and you lost. And so now, because it was really credible for a time that myself or people on my experiment called Bicep2 could plausibly win the Nobel Prize for our announcement of discovery of the a gravitational signature, gravitational waves from the uh, Big Bang's earliest epoch called inflation. Those that discovery in 2014 really positioned us the day of and for months afterwards in the real catbird seat to win the Nobel Prize. So, getting accolades from fellow physicists who not only you know agree with me about the Nobel Prize, but really you know claim that they the presentation of the scientific content, not just the you know kind of memoir or Nobel Prize aspects, but really describing how we know what we know about cosmology from the perspective of, you know, what I always say is ironic. All, all every single book, you know, Matt and I've written books, um, you know, it comes with a dust jacket. And I always think, well, it's kind of weird. You know, it's like, you know, you never see a book that comes with a wormhole jacket or, uh, <laughs> or a black Ooh. hole jacket. And yet those are, you know, really sexy things that are, you know, so far removed from reality. And yet, dust is ubiquitous and and really was the <laughs> the villain of the book so to speak so i wanted to make use of the dust jacket so nice. the next edition is going to have real you know cosmic dust sprinkled on top of it that would be fantastic yeah. but you just if i ever get on to project runway the show <laughs> where they compete to uh, not that i have any skills in fashion or whatever but uh, if i'm on that show i am going to create a wormhole jacket <laughs> i mean i don't see how we could lose i just yeah in that worm, that wormhole takes me to the universe where I win. <laughs> so you had a absolutely fantastic what the if question. I'm going to let Matt introduce this for us and set us up. Let everybody strap on your seatbelts. And by wow. the way, these are, you know, like not just a regular seatbelt, but the, of course, the one that goes over your shoulder and the other one that goes over your other shoulder and the one that goes over your lap. And then those bring those bars down the hydraulic, like on the roller coaster. They're just going to seal in there and um, put on your helmet and of course badass aviator glasses okay we are now ready to be right. tell us all right so some time ago there was a thing called the big bang right and we usually say that's the the beginning of the universe and we've got cosmologists spend their time at least the theorists coming up with models of what the universe would look like. And then folks like Brian are the ones who tell us which models might be true and which ones might not be. And one of, I'd say one of the greatest contributions of modern cosmology is the realization that our universe had a moment of beginning. That is that there was this thing that we call the Big Bang at which the conditions of the universe as we know it were so different that it's safe to say it was completely different kind of thing. But that doesn't stop cosmologists from talking about all those other different kinds of models. And they can, cosmologists will happily describe to you all sorts of different kinds of universes. Uh, and one of the ones that we're going to be doing today is a universe where there was more than one Big Bang, multiple Big Bangs. And it turns out that's, uh, that can mean a bunch of different things. Wait a second. Um, multiple yeah. Big, Big Bangs. Bang. First, I'm going to ask yeah. one, one quick question. Now, I feel like I was going to ask you, what year, it would have been over a period of time, but like when, when did the Big Bang sort of really solidify itself as the current, as the, the, the proper fear? Uh, and the, when I, I was just say, when I was in school in the 70s, in elementary school, I believe the way we were taught was like, maybe this, this, it might be a steady state, steady state universe. Mm -hmm. 
or it might be a big bang. Yeah, so yeah. the 1960s saw the discovery of what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, which I, I would wager uh, Brian's going to talk about a little bit. Um, and that's generally accepted as the observation that decided between the steady state models and uh, expanding universe models or wow. the big bang models that we talked about today. And as is always the case, it takes a little while for ideas to fully percolate through the scientific community. But certainly by the 70s, yeah, it was broadly accepted. I grew up also right outside Washington, D.C., where is always the last to get naturally real science. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So, what multiple big bangs? Multiple big bangs. So, so just a uh, comment on Matt's uh, discussion. The discovery of the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, took place in 1965 by a team of really radio astronomers were working at Bell Laboratories outside in uh, in New Jersey, Holmdel, New Jersey, in central New Jersey. You know, the biggest thing to ever come out of New Jersey, in my opinion, is a New Yorker. <laughs> the best thing, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. I love New Jersey. But the, uh, but the discovery really wasn't viewed as definitive proof for many, many years. And I think it's, it's sort of a testimony to the attribute of the steady state theory that made it so attractive to its adherence. And that is that the steady state theory was sort of a unique prediction. There, there's sort of only one way to have a steady state universe. And the disproof or the, uh, the, the kind of disconfirmation, if you will, of, of that model really took place rather than say the proof of the big bang. So I'll explain what I mean. When the, when the Penzias and Wilson results came out in 1965, they weren't looking for the Big Bang. They found it serendipitously, this three Kelvin radiation background coming to us in all directions at all times and with complete symmetry in, in, in space and in time. And the discovery was not able to be understood by the two astronomers who found it. And they brought it to colleagues and sort of friendly competitors at Princeton University, led by Bob Dickey who immediately recognized that it was the leftover heat from an early denser phase in the universe. And so the two teams decided that they would write uh, a paper, each one write a paper consecutively in the Astrophysical Journal, which is the you know main one of the main publications in our field. And it was the sequential paper and with the discovery announcement, just a two-page long paper announcing the technical details of the discovery by Penzias and Wilson, and then Dickey and his colleague, uh, Jim Peebles, who's uh, still at Princeton, they described the finding as consistent, not with the Big Bang. In fact, they never mentioned the words Big Bang in the entire paper. Huh. Instead, they, they really adhered to a model in which the universe underwent cyclical bangs and crunches. And the context of the interpretation that they made was that the heat, the this three Kelvin signal, the CMB, was the byproduct of a epoch when the universe had collapsed from a previous epoch. Ooh. So in their model, there was at least a, you know, sort of a universe that preceded the current expanding phase of our universe. And it really wasn't until 1990 when the COBE satellite released its results that showed the CMB was consistent with a black body 
radiation, what's called a black body or thermal radiation distribution, that it really became solidified. So the story is a little bit more complicated, I think, and it really points to the fact that the notion of multiple big bangs or multiple epochs, perhaps, in addition to our current epoch, uh, is still very much in favor. And it has legitimacy in many different fields, ranging from quantum mechanics to early universe called inflationary cosmology. And, and it even has you know, some purchase in this discussion of the multiverse, which, which is an allied sort of concept. And so, yeah, the concept of multiple, you know, big, uh, big bangs is not too, is, is not a new phenomenon. People have thought about this for that. In fact, even the ancient, as I know you guys are conversant, the ancient Babylonian Talmud suggests that, that the, the creator of the universe, you know, experimented about 90 different times, allegedly. Really? Even the, uh, the, the people that came up with the, the Genesis narrative themselves didn't, didn't believe in a unitary Big Bang. Whoa, that's interesting. So real quick, I just want to define some terms, just to sort of a quick little, for, for those who, who, who are doing their best to keep up here, and that is the, just say steady state was the idea that the universe was always as it looks now, and it would always stay that way for an indefinite yeah, or pretty infinite. pretty much stays that way. Yep. And that is actually what Einstein believed and what most people believed. Einstein's steady-state universe was a little different than um, what we usually think of as a steady-state model, but we don't need to get into to that. And then there was this notion that, well, no, maybe this all began as a tiny, tiny, infinitesimally small thing that explosion, I know, is actually not the right term, but expanded. Expanded rapidly, yeah. Yeah. And then the question becomes, well, if, it, if that is right, then the it's like, well, will it continue to expand forever, or will it eventually slow down, and will gravity pull it all back together? So the big crunch, they call it. And what you were mentioning about uh, Penzias and Wilson looking at oh, an another term, I'll just want to uh, clarify that cosmic background radiation is literally just, it's, it's too cold for us to see it, but if your eyes were sensitive, uh, like the radio telescope was sensitive to this, you would basically look up and you would see that even in the very, very, very darkest parts of the sky, there was this reddish glow, basically. Like, just three degrees, uh, that the temperature is in, in every direction. It's exactly, almost exactly the same. And so the question was, what is this? Why is the whole universe glowing with this heat? And then you, so there was this idea that actually that was a remnant of an earlier crunch. Yeah. So if there had been a crunch, why would there still be anything left? Right. So the crunch uh, was sort of the most violent you know, end point of a previous universe. So um, once you stipulate that the, that the universe is changing, then you can ask in what possible ways consistent with observations is it changing? And one of those ways is that it's very slowly changing over the process of, you know, trillions of years. Uh, maybe it's changing so slowly you can't even discern that it's changing. And that, you know, is a reasonable, uh, you know, kind of a conjecture. But another conjecture was that if the universe began in a much hotter, denser phase in our current epoch of, of 
the evolving universe, uh, no matter what's going to happen to it in the distant future, if it was once much smaller and denser and hotter than it is today, then the temperatures at which it would achieve would be equivalent to that required for nuclear fusion processes to take place. So if you had the raw materials of atoms, namely electrons, protons, neutrons, then you could forge the very first elements on the periodic table, namely hydrogen and helium, and that might be sufficient to to start the process of the formation of stars and then later on collections of stars called proto-galaxies and then galaxies themselves, clusters of galaxies, etc., which would grow under gravitational influence. So it is a possibility that even an expanding universe can eventually turn around and collapse down in on itself. We don't think that's a likely explanation for what's going to happen in our universe. So, you know, keep paying your taxes. (laughs) But if it did collapse, eventually the process could begin again. And so if you have this infinite series of cycles, that is one way you could have multiple big bangs. So a big bounce. Yeah. Then you might say, well, what would be left after such an event? Wouldn't the Big Bang destroy all traces of its former life? (laughs) You know, kind of like, you know, reinventing yourself after high school. (laughs) And the answer is that there are things, according to very eminent scientists, such as Sir Roger Penrose and, and his colleagues, that may be able to survive the passage through this collapsing, compressing, crunching universe. Wow. Those are very fascinating to consider. They're highly, you know, kind of out of the mainstream ideas. Are they just traces or are they actual st- structure? For instance, this is really out there, but for instance, would it be possible that we could find a planet or, you know, a, some kind of structure that's like, that's not from our, that actually was created in another, maybe that little rock actually, umuamua, just to throw in another crazy thing that happens, right? But, but some little, some, some weird rock fragment would be like, actually, maybe in the previous cycle of the Big Bang, that was an entire planet. That's, as they say, not bloody likely. <laughs> <laughs> but what Roger Penrose would say after he said that, because um, any process sufficient to trigger nuclear fusion in in helium and hydrogen will necessarily be energetic enough to destroy a macroscopic chunk of rock or alien craft. But there are things that are very difficult to destroy. The two most prominent ones are black holes. Ooh. You know, they're they're just incredibly powerful gravitational fields with with uh, basically, you know, unknown properties of the material within, but they're as compactified as they can get. He claims in our present universe, it could be black holes from the previous universe. Wow. What, what properties might a black hole have that would identify it as being from a previous universe? What he claims is that it may still be possible for the magnetic field to endure through this bouncing phase. And the observations by the BICEP2 instrument that I helped to construct at the South Pole, which is the subject of my book, in his mind counts as evidence for the existence of these 
what he calls hawking points. Ah. These are re- regions of our cosmic microwave background sky that have patterns consistent with what such a universe would look like if it were populated by black holes early on that came from the previous universe and the previous Big Bang epoch. I should say these are not at all accepted because the evidence that's required is not consistent with the evidence that we actually released. He's sort of misinterpreting, in my opinion, the Mm. data that we released in a way to confirm the theory that these Hawking points have been proven. And so I suggested to him, he was here in San Diego last month, and uh, we talked extensively about how he could actually go about using the data in a way that could confirm, confirm or refute this idea that the universe has these eons, multiple epochs, where the end of one universe becomes sort of identified with the beginning of the next. So that's one scenario where you could have, you know, plausible discussion of of an infinitely extending time coordinate. <laughs> what happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang? That's to me the most interesting question in all of science. These ideas from Penrose are really out there like just at the fringe. And yet, Penrose is, tell us, Matt, you know, wh- where does he stand? He, he's very elite. Oh, yeah, he's the, the, the great king of general relativity, right? <laughs> you can't dispute, you can't throw Roger Penrose out of a room for coming up with a crazy idea. I thought Einstein was the king of general relativity. Well, there's sort of a generational thing. I don't know, Brian. Can you imagine anyone more senior than Penrose who's still alive today? No, he's, yeah, I mean, he was central to Stephen Hawking's early ideas on black holes and, and, and really, you know, how they would behave as singularities. He came up with some of the ideas for the, you know, the, the interrelationship between the Big Bang origin of the universe and the singularity and a black hole. He's uh, one of the most brilliant people in the world. And then in his later years, as if that weren't enough, he got into the theory of computation, artificial intelligence, and lastly, consciousness, which is what brings him to La Jolla. He works with uh, some colleagues here on a very, again, controversial topic of uh, consciousness and quantum mechanics. Was he like Hawking's mentor or were they classmates? He and Hawking were contemporaries i think they had the same thesis advisor perhaps at, at cambridge and he and they maintained you know kind of a close friendship yeah and they uh, he's depicted in the movie uh, theory of everything a bit part and in fact isn't it interesting that it just so happens that a scientist proposes that his thing the thing he studies would last even beyond the death of the universe, into the next year. I mean, that's chutzpah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Brian, if we had a um, bounce cosmology and our universe crunched uh, and then expanded into a whole new universe, how might that universe be different from the one we know today? Is it the kind of thing where, like, Carter wins the presidency in 1980? Or is it uh, there are no atoms? 
Yeah. <laughs> With a multiverse, literally anything is possible. So yes, you guys are on guests on my show. If the what? <laughs> as much much lower ratings. But the bottom line is that the multiverse is the uh, you know, and there's many different flavors of the multiverse. I shouldn't say the multiverse is. You know, Matt Max Tegmark wrote a book in which he outlines four different classes of multiverse, ranging from the the you know kind of unseen things beyond our cosmic horizon type level one multiverse, all the way up to the only things that exist are numbers and mathematical concepts, and we're just instantiations of those concepts. Um, and so his book is called Our Mathematical Universe. And could there be a Big Bang within our universe that we would? See, I mean, it depends on what the meaning of the word universe is. So when we were kids, there was one universe and that was the sum total of everything that existed, I think, and could possibly exist. Now, when we say universe, sometimes we mean multiverse in that right. there's the po all possible sets of locations in space time, uh, some of which had enough matter and energy to nucleate the you know a universe and in our re local region of the universe our universe and our, our local region of the multiverse our universe but there could literally be right beyond our universe is a 13.79 billion years old uh, and for technical reasons we can actually see out to objects that are more than the age of the universe times the speed of light uh, by a factor of about three, thanks to the magic of general relativity. We won't get into that. Whoa, I but, didn't um, realize that. Three times. Yeah, so mm -hmm. you can actually see out to uh, a, a radius of about 46 billion light years. So now, in a year from now, we'll be able to see 46 billion in one light year, if you think about it, right? Because light will, it, roughly, it may actually be three light years, but, but whatever. Let's just call it one light year more. Um, so there could be another universe literally that's one light year beyond the 46 billion light year radius of our universe yeah. and that if it expands and we expand we would have encountered that universe and in fact there are models that predict that and that would be proof of the multiverse so that would mean there's another universe which may or may not again it could have been born it could have had its big bang a billion years ago wow. uh, but and but be located at just the propitious, you know, fortuitous distance from right ours yeah. to, to get into contact with ours. Very rude neighbor, just like bumping <laughs> into us right away. What would, yeah, what would we right. see if we saw another universe pushing into ours? Yeah. So, uh, so that's been the, the, the subject of a couple of papers and some uh, popular attention. You, it turns out that, that one of the signatures that you claim to be able to see in such a case would be, because those now two universes share a set of volume, you know, their union, uh, sorry, their intersection is now common between them. So there's some overlapping boundary where they've kissed each other, right? Or bounced off of, you know, knocked into each other. <laughs> so the properties in those physical, you know, in that part of our universe and that part of, you know, Spock's universe have to be the same. And so you would see a specific pattern of, radiation distortion in the microwave background so that's a claim that you could see evidence for for another universe or it could be used as evidence for another universe if if we see distortion what does that would it be like something 
So in my mind, of course, I imagine like a huge fireball coming at us. I gave a TEDx talk here about four years ago where I took inflated about 50 of these beach balls and then I passed them around the audience of a couple thousand people and asked them to hit, swat them around and <laughs> until they hit each other. And eventually they did. And, you know, you kind of get like a bruise. You get like a, a distortion, a compression. And if you think about it, if you have two beach balls that collide together, they're going to intersect on sort of a disc-like or circular pattern. And that's what happens. So the, the, the space-time volumes overlap and you get this pattern that is allegedly going to reveal circles in the microwave sky that would be indicative of the multiverse. But the issue is, you know, again, we may find it next week, next year, next millennium, next giga year, <laughs> next <laughs> year. Yeah. So we don't really know when that's going to happen. And, and so what's interesting is that, so the multiverse can't, but you can't say that it doesn't exist, right? Because anyone who is a multiverse, you know, has stock in Acme multiverse companies who say, well, you just got to wait another year and we're going to. Yeah, that's right. But, that's right. So you can't falsify the multiverse uh, because any observation is consistent with, with it. These are very philosophic things that Matt is much more equipped to talk about than I am. But the last thing I'll say is that the virtue of Penrose for all the kind of peculiarities of his model and, and non-orthodoxy of it is that it could be ruled out. The BICEP2 experiment is now being upgraded. Two more generations of BICEP telescope have been built and are, are un, under construction to see deeper and get past the dust that flummoxed us previously. And if we see something with BICEP array, as it's called, or with the project that I lead called the Simons Observatory, that would be actually a refutation of Penrose's model. It would be definitive, as close to definitive proof the multiverse is probably correct. Whoa. Interesting. Whoa. So the, 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 the telescope array that you're leading, the project, is looking for evidence. Yeah. So we're, we're you know, we never say we're looking, well, I shouldn't say that we never do that because we <laughs> did, I did that. In the, but, <laughs> you know, you're not looking to confirm the hypothesis. You're really trying to see how low in the parameter space you could go before you make a detection, or hit some ultimate bedrock below which you cannot further pursue. Like, when do you stop an experiment? It's a very, it's a very pointed question. Um, and it's not really something that there's a good handbook to deal with. Well, I would say when Mr. Simon says, uh, I'm out, yeah. I fold. <laughs> no. Yes, we're done. We just, uh, go to, we go to your Patreon, we go to your Patreon community, and they it will hook us up. That's the way we do it. Promise now. me, Phil. Yeah, we should, now we could call it Astreon or something like that. <laughs> and is it correct? I feel like it's the last thing I want to just give an image yeah. of a scientist, a person is, we talk so much about inflation and that, am I correct in saying that is associated with Alan Guth? Yeah, so Alan Guth was one of the first uh, people to ever think about it in the West. Uh, there are discussions as to whether or not other people had the idea behind the Iron Curtain in Russia. Um but what's interesting to me is that uh, both Roger Penrose and uh, Paul Steinhardt really, you know, played a role in, in kind of identifying early features of inflation. And then Paul Steinhardt actually solved one of the most crucial problems in inflation, which was how do you really stop it from from continuing to create 
these uh, fluctuations, these perturbations, and and kind of it's an allied issue with the with the multiverse. And he went from being the father of it, as I say in my book. You know, he really then he started denying paternity. And, you know, I joke with him that he's like a deadbeat dad, you know, who doesn't want any part of this kid's life, you know, because he really believes the multiverse is bad in term as a scientific theory. And I'm writing a piece now for Eon magazine discussing the, the, the current state of affairs where people are really contentiously trading barbed comments in the media, you know, amongst, you know, five Nobel laureates and, and on one side and 30 other cosmologists on a different side. And, you know, kind of it's it's very interesting to me to see these debates play out in public. So, you know, watch this space literally, figuratively. <laughs> and will someday we may know that there weren't multiple Big Bangs, at least of the kind of multiple cyclic universes. Brian, thank you so much. And for all this effort, I again, I, I, I can't send you a Nobel Prize, but I can send you a finger puppet. Yes. Small. Yes. <laughs> small consolation. But uh, the un, as you mentioned then before, our, our friends at the Unemployed Philosophers Guild, makers of fine, funny, hilarious, smart things. Smart, funny toys for smart, funny people. They Great. call it philosophersguild.com. We're going to send you a finger puppet. And for those of you who are listening, by the way, you're like, how can I get a finger puppet? Do I have to build a, a telescope on the South Pole? <laughs> it wouldn't hurt. Wouldn't hurt. <laughs> but you can actually get your own. They are so cool at the the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. And, and you know you know how it is sometimes with the people who are down and out tend to be the more generous ones at, at times, can be the more generous ones. They're unemployed and they were like, we love your show. We love your audience. Tell them 10% off. This is a very New York thing, too, by the way. Yeah. You got a friend? 10%. So you got a friend. You guys got a friend here at the Unemployed <laughs> Philosophers Guild. I can hook you up. My man, my lady. I got a guy. You we got, got a guy. guy. We got a lady. And uh, 10% off if you go to their website, philosophersguild.com, and use the coupon. The coupon code is four letters. And here they come. They are not the four. What are the four letters of DNA? Oh, yeah, whatever that. No, it's not that. It's not that. It's not the four letters that that make your kids giggle. Here they are. It's just W T I F. That's it. Go enter the coupon code W T I F. You get ten percent off anything, not just finger puppets, by the way. Anything you want. Um, and right. also, where Brian, where is Amazon the best place? Where you prefer yeah. people to go get your book, Losing the Amazon. Nobel Prize. Yes, Amazon's good. My website's brianketing.com and on the Twitters I am Dr. Brian Keating, DR Brian Keating on Twitter. Fantastic. Our website is whattheif.com. On Twitter we are at whattheifshow. And by the way, I would ask you if you haven't already, subscribe to the show. If you know how to do that, just do it. It takes two seconds. You've been meaning to. Then the wonderful AIs, the computers that live in the cloud and in your phone will communicate and just automatically, whenever we if, you get the what. No, it just downloads automatically. All you have to do is, and if you don't know how to subscribe, and it's absolutely free. Just go to our website, whattheif.com, click the subscribe button, and it'll ask you, do you prefer Apple or Android? And you're done. You're done. 
free. You can also learn about these two crazy guys here, me and Professor Matt, and you can contact us there as well. Also, if you could just leave us a review, that's one last thing. Both, actually, Brian, you can, reviews are helpful for the books too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So please. Absolutely. If you have read, first of all, go go get it. If you haven't, go get it from Amazon, Losing the Nobel Prize by Brian Keating. And don't forget to go back and uh, put a review there. That's super helpful for Amazon. And likewise for podcasts, uh, iTunes is the place where even if you don't use Apple, it's the place to go and just leave a review. And that's where even Google uses those reviews from iTunes. Next week, I don't know. I don't know, you know, if there's another universe coming our way, <laughs> uh, we'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned here because you won't get it anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. And until that happens, as long as that rude universe next door is slowly bumping into us, we still hold stock in that multiverse theory. What was it? As you said, it could be tomorrow. That's mm-hmm. right. It could be tomorrow. So every keep time. Shaving. Keep shaving. <laughs> I like it. Keep paying your tax. <laughs> For better or worse, we can still dream about what is that we'll see tomorrow? What's over the time horizon? And Brian, you could join us if you, I'm not sure if you remember our ritual here. We can now be a triumvirate that screams out to the universe the name and the motto of the show, which Matt. Take us away. What? What? The end. <laughs> <laughs>